The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Senate Republicans hide behind a woman. This is Thursday, September 27th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The vote is tomorrow in the Senate Judiciary Committee on whether or not to confirm Judge Brett Kavanaugh to a lifetime on the United States Supreme Court. Today, anything could happen. Today is the day Professor Christine Blasey Ford will tell the Senate Judiciary Committee of a time she says Supreme Court nominee Kavanaugh held her down, put his hand over her mouth, and began to remove her clothing. Dr. Ford is not being allowed to call witnesses to support her story, including a key witness, another man who was in the room at the time and who was allegedly loosely involved in that incident. She's also not allowed to call as witnesses any of the people she's told about the incident long before Kavanaugh was nominated, including her husband. She is also not entitled to the last word. He gets that. Today is also the day Judge Brett Kavanaugh will defend himself against those charges, introducing evidence he says backs up his claim of innocence to a committee that is mostly Republican and overwhelmingly male. Kavanaugh also got hours of coaching over several days beforehand in practice Q&A sessions at the White House. Kavanaugh reportedly grew irritated at the personal questions being asked in that first practice session and at one point said, I'm not going to answer that perhaps a foretelling of his breaking point in today's questions before the Senate Judiciary Committee's open hearing. At any rate, the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh is no longer a foregone conclusion. It will take at least two Republican no votes to keep Kavanaugh off the Supreme Court. There may already be three. Trump and Senate Republicans are so nervous, Brett Kavanaugh this week became the first Supreme Court nominee in history to appear on television to try to defend himself against a slow avalanche of accusations. Just as both Kavanaugh and Ford had finally agreed to testify at today's public hearing, we learned of new accusations of sexual misconduct by Kavanaugh. It took a while to get to that point, Republicans resisting any delay in confirming a justice who would oppose abortion and protect Trump, despite their delay on Obama's nomination of Merritt Garland for nearly a year. Just as that long struggle over the testimony of Professor Christine Blasey Ford had been settled, the New Yorkers Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer brought forth a second accuser, 53-year-old Deborah Ramirez, who also attended Yale University when Kavanaugh did. She told a story of heavy drinking, Kavanaugh's genitals being thrust in her face, and him laughing at her shocked reaction. And Ms. Ramirez, who says she came forward when she saw how Dr. Ford was being treated, is asking the FBI to investigate her claims just as Dr. Ford had asked of hers. She may also testify today. It isn't clear. Kavanaugh denies the allegations and some witnesses are supporting his denial. And the New Yorker reports that senior Republicans in the Senate learned of this second allegation last week. And after that, pushed even harder for a fast confirmation setting one artificial deadline after another. But regardless of whose story they support, several witnesses agree that in college, Kavanaugh was frequently drunk and that while drunk, he became more aggressive. Republicans refused an FBI investigation of the Ford case, even though such investigations have always been conducted for all nominees, especially nominees for a lifetime seat on the Supreme Court. They are refusing to call Kavanaugh's friend, Mark Judge, who 
was reportedly present during both alleged assaults, reportedly the only witness to the alleged assault on Christine Blasey Ford. Conservatives even tried to argue that perhaps Dr. Ford was was attacked, but by someone who looks a lot like Brett Kavanaugh, and that Ms. Ford simply misremembered. It was 35 years ago, they said, and there was drinking, an admission Trump seized upon in his subsequent attack of Dr. Ford. Republicans tried to argue that these alleged incidents in high school and college were just teenage hijinks, while Democrats insist that even a 17-year-old knows that an attempt to force sex is illegal. Simultaneous to the emergence of a second accuser came word of a third from Michael Avenatti, who represents Stormy Daniels and who has also talked about running for president in 2020. Avenatti reappeared to say he has additional and credible and significant evidence on Brett Kavanaugh and the friend who was reportedly present for more than one incident, Mark Judge. Judge, now found holed up in a beach house in Delaware, is refusing to talk, and Republicans in control of the Senate Judiciary Committee are refusing to subpoena him. Avenatti says he represents a third woman who has allegations to make against Judge Kavanaugh, a highly credible woman, he said, who's willing to take a lie detector test, just as Christine Blasey Ford had already done. Julie Swetnick says she was the victim of a gang rape and that Brett Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge were in the room at the time. And she says she clearly saw Kavanaugh and Judge standing in line outside a room in which another woman was being gang raped. And like Dr. Ford, this third woman, who's now identified herself as Julie Swetnick, is also willing to speak with FBI investigators, a situation in which lying would be a serious, imprisonable crime. Avenatti wants to testify for the committee, and he wants to introduce evidence, and he wants to call Mark Judge to testify, as well as others. The questions Avenatti wants the committee members to ask may give clues about the evidence to which Avenatti refers. Whether Kavanaugh targeted women for rape whether he assisted Mark Judge in any such assaults, whether he saw men lined up outside bedrooms at parties where a woman inside was being gang-raped, and was Kavanaugh ever part of a devil's triangle, meaning sex involving one woman and two men? Avenatti's questions are as laser-pointer-specific as they are graphic. The end game, says Avenatti, is to get Trump to withdraw Kavanaugh's nomination. That now appears to at least be a possibility. Trump saying last night that he would reconsider his nominee if today's testimony against Kavanaugh is compelling. Trump also confessed that his views on Kavanaugh's accusers are shaped in part by the many accusers that have come forward over the years against him. All of this after saying Kavanaugh's second accuser, quote, has nothing. And then came news of a fourth accuser. NBC News reported last night that Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee grilled Kavanaugh earlier this week about this now fourth accuser. This one came forth in an anonymous letter, but it described a grown-up Brett Kavanaugh forcing himself on a woman at a bar in D.C.'s Georgetown during his work on the Ken Starr investigation of Bill Clinton. Republican handling of these allegations, and especially their handling by Trump, have added another albatross to the party's clumsy attempt to keep control of Congress. Republicans were already in trouble with women voters, especially in the crucial suburbs. These attacks on Professor Ford's credibility shore up the perception that Republicans do not take seriously accusations of sexual assault. South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman joked that 85-year-old Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just accused Abe Lincoln of groping her. 
At first, Trump and his White House aides were on the same high road page, asserting that Dr. Ford deserved to be heard. It was an easy position for Trump to take since he wasn't the one being called out for sexual misconduct this time. That was in the first few days of last week, but by Friday, Trump had abandoned the high ground and began to attack Professor Ford. On Twitter, Trump indicated Ford would have reported the assault to police, quote, if it were as bad as she says. Police in Montgomery County, Maryland, where the assault allegedly occurred, say they stand ready to investigate if and when Dr. Ford decides to press criminal charges against Kavanaugh, an option she still has since the statute of limitations doesn't run out on such crimes in Maryland. She can also take her case to the American people, an option that Senate Democrats have as well. Trump's tweet prompted hundreds of thousands of women to post their own experiences with reporting these crimes and their experiences with not reporting them, fearing that they would not be believed or worse, become targets for the attacker's lawyer. The Kavanaugh questions and their handling by Trump and Republican lawmakers have even soured Republican women voters, especially in the suburbs. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins said she was appalled by Trump's tweets about Dr. Ford, adding that, quote, allegations of sexual assault are one of the most unreported crimes that exist. And her vote is key. Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski is expected to vote however Senator Collins votes. But even she has said her party must listen seriously to Kavanaugh's accusers. That's two. A skeptical Jeff Flake would make three. To support Ford's credibility, Democrats point to her career as a research psychologist, co-authoring some 500 books, and the possibility that someone making a false accusation would not ask the FBI to investigate it. Republicans promised to conduct their own investigation, which involved an aide to Senator Chuck Grassley, who has since been forced to resign over his own sexual harassment allegations. Dr. Ford has been willing to endure death threats that have forced her to flee her home just to pursue what she believes is an important truth. She had nothing to gain and everything to lose by coming forward. Women of both parties have watched as Senate Republicans have tried to avoid investigations or anything that would slow down or stand in the way of their long-awaited conservative majority for the Supreme Court. Female support for the Republican Party has fallen from its average of 37% down to 32 and falling. Kavanaugh, who was already the least popular Supreme Court nominee in recorded history, fell even farther after Dr. Ford's story broke. At the start of this week, only 34% of us supported Kavanaugh's confirmation, and that was before a second accuser had come forward. Even many Republicans who support Kavanaugh's confirmation say they do believe the claims of Christine Blasey Ford. And we will all see today Christine Blasey Ford being grilled, not by the 11 skeptical Republican men on the Judiciary Committee, but by a lawyer who's been hired to ask what Republicans don't want to be seen asking on video that will be around forever. And the Kavanaugh mess comes at a time when Democrats already have a solid lead in the midterm races. Democratic control of the House is now all but certain, and Democratic control of the Senate is now likely as well. Republicans know the price they could pay in the upcoming elections for the grilling of Dr. Ford, so they got someone else to do it for them, a lawyer who happens to be a woman, a female Republican prosecutor from Arizona to ask questions on behalf of the 11 Republican men who will sit quietly on the sidelines. Republicans, afraid to ask the questions themselves, have hired a prosecutor as if Kavanaugh's accuser were facing some kind of criminal charge 
which she is not. Democrats on the committee, meanwhile, will do their own questioning, limited to five minutes each with no follow-ups. But Republicans could also pay a high political price for a failure to confirm Kavanaugh, a dream of many Republican voters as well, especially those who oppose legal abortions. So, for Republicans, today's grilling of Dr. Ford will be nice and clean. All the same tough questions with no lingering video clips to be used against them in campaign ads. Still, Republican fingerprints will be all over those questions with a midterm election less than six weeks away. But they've long dreamed of a conservative majority on the highest court in the land, and they have come so very close. Genitals in the face close. Donald Trump has come as close as he'll get to a Supreme Court justice who would rule in his favor when it came to charges of high crimes and misdemeanors. So close, and yet increasingly so far away. It's very sad, said Donald Trump in an interview with Hill TV right after he'd said, I don't have an attorney general. Trump was attacking Jeff Sessions again, but this time in an apparent preparation to fire Sessions right after Trump voters go to the polls on November 6th. To do so beforehand would likely displease Trump's base in that they really like the job Jeff Sessions is doing, whittling immigration to a comparative trickle. But Trump still doesn't have his wall and quoting him, I'm not happy at the border. I'm not happy with numerous things, not just this. I'm very disappointed in Jeff, said Trump, very disappointed. I'm disappointed in the attorney general for many reasons. You understand that, said Trump, in case his motives are questioned in the future, as they were after his chat with Lester Holt. This being the Russia investigation and his anger at Sessions for recusing himself from that investigation instead of controlling the investigation in Trump's favor. Trump's even referred to Sessions as Mr. Magoo, mixed up and confused. And according to Bob Woodward's book, Trump also used mentally retarded to describe the man he had chosen to be his attorney general. It's very sad, said Trump, as he reportedly lays the foundation for the eminent firing of Jeff Sessions and replacing him with someone who would take charge of the Russia probe and kill it. And Trump has warned that more heads will roll in the Justice Department and FBI. At a campaign stop in Springfield, Missouri, he took credit for weeding out, quote, the bad ones, adding, there is a lingering stench, and we're going to get rid of that too. Next in line behind Jeff Sessions is Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who set off a flurry of headlines Monday morning by heading for the White House to talk to Chief of Staff John Kelly, convinced Rosenstein was that he was about to be fired. He took with him a letter of resignation. Although he'd previously vowed not to quit, Rosenstein has a pension and a family to protect, and a resignation letter to head off a firing might save that pension. He also wanted a clean exit with no Trump Twitter tirades. Rosenstein had been thinking about quitting since Friday evening and called White House counsel Don McGahn over the weekend to let him know he was considering resigning. McGahn, who's on his way out the door after the midterms, told Rosenstein to call John Kelly. Rosenstein called Kelly, and Kelly asked if he could wait until Monday. First thing Monday morning, Rosenstein was off to the White House, and the flurry of headlines began, indicating that one way or another, Rosenstein was a goner. Top aides of the Justice Department were convinced they were putting together a public statement about who would succeed Mr. Rosenstein. But Rosenstein was wrong, and consequently so were his aides, and consequently so were the headlines. 
The White House and congressional Republicans do not want Rosenstein to exit before the midterms and not while they've already got one troublesome nomination on their hands. And Rosenstein could have known that when he carried that resignation letter over to John Kelly. In the end, Kelly would not accept Rosenstein's resignation, not yet, not now. A letter of resignation, said Kelly, would have to be delivered directly to the president anyway, not to the chief of staff. A Rosenstein exit would look bad for Trump at an especially inconvenient moment for Republicans, especially since now they fear they may lose the Senate this fall, as well as the House. Rosenstein was off to the White House to resign over comments he may or may not have made, which he may or may not have intended as humor. In a no-ideas-too-stupid meeting, Rosenstein had reportedly proposed jokingly about wearing a wire during conversations with Trump and organizing a 25th Amendment movement in Trump's cabinet to remove him from office. Rosenstein denies he said any of these things. As Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein oversees the Mueller investigation, and he's been a fierce defender of it. He's also taken his share of verbal abuse from Trump. But what came out of that Monday morning meeting with John Kelly was not a firing or a resignation, but that Trump would meet with Rosenstein today after he'd wrapped up his United Nations appearances earlier this week. In today's meeting, Rosenstein was expected to deny that New York Times report that he had talked about secretly recording conversations with the president and organizing a 25th Amendment removal of Trump. Republicans in Washington say such talk demands that Rosenstein be fired or impeached. Trump's closest advisors, the ones with shows on the Fox News Channel, were telling him to do it. Fire Rosenstein, they said. Cooler heads in the White House told Trump, uh, not on a Friday. What they meant was not before the midterms, but getting through the weekend might be nice. Rosenstein, who's made clear he'd rather fight than quit, says the Times report about his alleged comments is factually incorrect. Still, Trump is reportedly determined to fire Rosenstein, who's defended the Mueller probe and authorized the FBI raid on former Trump lawyer fixer Michael Cohen and appointed Robert Mueller as special counsel in the first place. Trump's wanted to fire Rosenstein for over a year, since June of 2017. He was asking aides about it again just this Friday. Because beneath the removable layers of Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein lies special counsel Robert Mueller and the investigation that Trump has described ad nauseum as a witch hunt by 17 angry Democrats, a corrupt FBI, a corrupt Justice Department, a deep state, and a fake news media. But even with those top officials gone, the evidence and the investigators and the reporters and the quest for the truth still exist, as do state laws to punish whatever a president might pardon at the federal level. But with Sessions and Rosenstein and Mueller gone, Trump mistakenly believes he can end the investigation into his campaign's ties with the Russian government. The thing that James Comey had been fired for not doing, namely ending the investigation. And then yesterday... Trump said he wants to keep Rosenstein on the job, that he never wanted to fire Rosenstein, and that, quote, he's very nice. Trump now says he may not meet with Rosenstein today after all, partly because they've already chatted by phone, partly because he thinks it's no longer necessary, partly because he says he'll be busy watching the Kavanaugh hearings. Quoting Trump, believe it or not. Also, in his post-midterms house cleaning, Trump is expected to fire Defense Secretary James Mattis, often described as one of the few adults in the room at the Trump White House. Look for other new administration faces as well. 
When you see a banana peel in the path of a cartoon character, you have a pretty good idea what's going to happen next. It's like that with classified documents and Donald Trump. He began last week by threatening to use his executive powers to release classified documents related to the investigation into his campaign ties with Russia. To do so would have endangered the lives of intelligence sources, squirreled the investigation, and made life even harder for the investigations of other crimes. It would also have been very helpful information for Trump's lawyers. And no redactions in those documents this time, said Trump. But if recent history is any lesson at all, this would have also blown up in his face like a cartoon cigar, just as it did with his last release of classified documents. In both cases, the intent was and is to discredit the Russia probe. It not only failed that first time, it made the investigation look even cleaner and the evidence even stronger. And that is perhaps why, by Friday, Trump had abandoned the idea for now. His advisors, even our allies, including the U.K., pleaded with Trump not to release these documents, so he didn't. For now. But last week, he was sorely tempted, and he came this close. It's been nearly two weeks now since Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort finally flipped and agreed to plead guilty and to cooperate with investigators. And the 69-year-old Manafort has kept talking with prosecutors throughout our focus on Rosenstein and Kavanaugh. And if he doesn't cooperate fully and honestly, Manafort's looking at spending the rest of his life in prison and Paul Manafort has a family too. Oh, he's still going to prison, but he now has reason to cooperate as much as he can to try to minimize that sentence. Even today, the Manafort flip is still the biggest breakthrough yet in the Mueller probe, and many believe it will inevitably lead to impeachment. Quoting Ken Starr, who had unsuccessfully tried to impeach Bill Clinton, we are much closer to getting the truth than we were before this plea. Starr says it's, quote, terrific for the investigation and, frankly, the American people. One by one, a handful of officials close to Trump have pleaded guilty for Mr. Mueller and turned state's evidence against Trump. The Russia scandal closes in on Trump even more. Robert Mueller now has the cooperation of the president's campaign chairman, the assistant campaign chairman, a campaign advisor, and his first national security advisor. Other prosecutors have the cooperation of Trump's former personal lawyer and his personal and professional accountant. It may be a while before we know what most of these men are telling federal investigators, but we will soon know what's been revealed by one of them. Former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn now has a sentencing date of December 18th. That means we should know nearly all of what he's revealed by then, and because prosecutors have given a green light for sentencing already, we may start learning some of what Flynn's had to say even sooner. Former Trump advisor KT McFarland has learned that she needed to revise the story that she had told the FBI about Flynn's conversations with the Russian ambassador about lifting sanctions on Russia. Like Flynn, KT McFarland had at first told the FBI she did not discuss that Russian conversation with Flynn. Now that Flynn has pleaded guilty and started talking, McFarland says she may have talked with Flynn about his conversation with the Russian ambassador. And in the same hour in which Manafort was convicted of federal felonies, Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, was being convicted on criminal counts in New York. We have since learned that, as he has indicated he would, 
It's been confirmed that Cohen is, in fact, cooperating fully with both federal and state investigations into Donald Trump. ABC News reports that Cohen has talked with the Mueller team for hours about Russia, possible collusion, and talk of a presidential pardon. Cohen has sat for interviews in both New York and Washington, also speaking freely with prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan and the New York Attorney General's Office, which is looking into Trump's businesses and his so-called charity. And Cohen's doing all this talking with no guarantee of leniency. There is no plea deal for him. The Mueller team was already talking with Cohen before it had struck a deal with Paul Manafort. Cohen's already pleaded guilty to eight felonies, some, he says, committed at the direction of the president. Trump's dozen Russia lawyers, meanwhile, are operating in the dark. They don't know what Mueller has, or who said what, or exactly where the investigation is headed now. They aren't even certain of what former Trump Russia lawyer John Dowd had given to Mueller, just that he'd handed over a lot. Worse yet, Trump's lawyers aren't sure if their client is telling them everything, truthfully. Trump's Russia lawyers are mostly flying blind. Back to school, back to guns. A little known fact about the coming election and is that your boat? After this. Again, just a quick thanks for your use of my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com, whether you're buying the Bob Woodward book or anything else. Amazon's even selling seven-foot Christmas trees this year. And now I'm addicted to Amazon Prime Music. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make there, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for home, school, church, or office. If you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal Donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Thank you. How's Trump's trade war going? Well, it's escalating. Or at least Trump is escalating it. This week, he imposed new 10% tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese products coming into the U.S. At the end of the year, that goes to 25%. And that's on top of the $50 billion in Chinese goods Trump had already hit with new tariffs, $250 billion total. And Trump did this even as U.S. and Chinese negotiators were getting closer to a deal to end the trade war. Just as he had predicted trade wars would be easy to win, Trump said it'll be a lot of money coming into the coffers of the United States of America. A lot of money coming in, he said. The United States Chamber of Commerce, though, thought it was a bad move and said so. But that didn't have nearly the impact as a warning from Walmart. Trump believes the Chinese stuff they sell at Walmart can be replaced by American-made goods. But America mostly doesn't make those things anymore. The motors for those great Lasco fans? Yeah, we can only get those from China. That means Americans will simply pay more for the Chinese-made products on the shelves at Walmart and every other retail store in the country. And Walmart said so, first to Team Trump privately and now to all of us publicly. Walmart sells Christmas lights, and 85% of the Christmas lights sold in this country come from China. Walmart did convince Trump to roll back the Grinch light tariffs on Christmas lights as well as dog food, shampoo, luggage, mattresses, purses, backpacks, vacuum cleaners, bicycles, outdoor grills, air conditioners, and cables for your phone or TV. But still on that list are $200 billion worth of things we need that are made in China only. And it's the everything else that's about to get more expensive. 
or people will lose their jobs because that's the choice an American manufacturer faces as casualties begin to mount in Trump's trade war, either raise prices or cut some hours or jobs and ask the survivors to work even harder. The European Central Bank says economic activity in the U.S. could drop by 2% as the result of a trade war, meaning lost jobs and a lower standard of living for everyone. The good news, Walmart and other stores are already stocked on Christmas lights for this year, imported before Trump's tariffs. You may want to pick up extras. They're expected to be more expensive next year. And how's the big tax cut, tax reform bill working out? A survey by none other than the Republican National Committee found that most voters think the tax overhaul favors corporations and the rich, not them. Oops. By a two-to-one margin. Double oops. As the Trump tariffs take effect and his supporters pay more for fewer choices, Republicans have learned the public isn't buying the tax shenanigans. And with the tax cut pushing the federal deficit toward $1 trillion, the government's about to be spending more on loan interest than it spends on the military. And that's saying something. More than two-thirds of everything he says is false, misleading, or unprovable, and that's not counting the lies he repeats, and he does repeat them often. Two weeks ago today, Trump set a new all-time personal best for lying, Washington Post fact-checkers say that on September 7th, Trump made 125 false and misleading statements in a single day, in fact, all of them, inside of two hours. That's more than one lie per minute. The fact-checkers say the day before, Trump made 74 false and misleading claims. Trump had spent those two early September days campaigning to Republican candidates in Montana and South Dakota. There were other milestones in the past month, including his 5,000th false claim, which was, of course, about the Russia probe. But, as documented on that campaign trip out west, Trump is most prolific with lies in front of a live crowd of supporters. His lies at the United Nations this week had delegates from the rest of the world laughing at him. Trump drew laughter when he bragged about the record-setting achievements of his administration. The world laughed this week at the President of the United States. Caught up in the crush of news, Bob Seska's taking the week off from this program, but he'll have a new show this evening, and I'll be back on that show come Tuesday. Thank you for your patience, as I have just returned from a week off. The kids are all back in school now, bracing for another year that's likely to include more mass gun violence. But schools across the country have taken steps to try to be more ready. At Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Florida, where 27 people died last school year, they've limited the number of entrances, added 52 more security cameras, started requiring see-through backpacks, which the students hate, and began requiring students to wear ID badges at all times. Also, at that now infamous school in Parkland, Florida, they've added a new fire alarm tone just for shootings. They've added four new security officers, more school resource officers, more gates on the grounds, and more locks all around. Across Florida, schools are now required to have at least one armed guard on each campus. At Santa Fe High in Texas, where 10 people were shot to death in an incident at the end of the last school year, they've subtracted entrances and added metal detectors and armed police and panic buttons, ID badges for the students and teachers, and set up a threat assessment team. 
They spent $650,000 on those panic buttons and $150,000 on classroom door locks and a quarter million to shore up the school's main entrance. A million dollars spent, not on books, but on defense against the guns that remain too easy for the wrong people to get. In Charleston, South Carolina, they've installed a few bulletproof classroom doors at a cost of $4,000 apiece. They have new blue alarm boxes in Illinois schools to alert police to an active shooter since another mass school shooting remains likely. A school in Ohio now has threat extinguishers. They're like fire extinguishers, but they shoot pepper spray. Most states still ban guns from school grounds, but school staff can pack heat in Alabama, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, South Dakota, and Wyoming. And only four of those states require any training. Welcome back to school, kids. There was a scary scattershot of gun violence last week across the country from the shooting in the office of a software company in Wisconsin to the wounding of four people at a city building in Pennsylvania 90 minutes later to the employee who killed three people and wounded three others at a Rite Aid facility in Maryland. Three active shooters inside 24 hours. Ducking for cover is the new normal. Oh, and the founder of a company that distributes blueprints for untraceable 3D-printed guns has resigned after facing sexual assault charges. Defense distributed founder Cody Wilson is charged with paying $500 to a 16-year-old girl for sex at a hotel. Wilson has since fled to Taiwan. I'm pretty sure there's a Warren Zevon song about this. Sex abuse in the Roman Catholic Church was back in the news with the announcement of a nearly $28 million settlement between the Brooklyn, New York Diocese and a local after-school program. The victims were boys ages 8 through 12, repeatedly abused by catechism teacher Angelo Serrano between the years of 2003 and 2009, at the time Serrano was in his 50s. News happens on all kinds of fronts, not just the ones at the front of the news. The Trump administration marched forward over these past two weeks in its campaign to slash immigration and to terrorize immigrants. The effort has not rested, even amid the screaming headlines about Kavanaugh and Rosenstein and Trump. We have learned that while all those other things had our attention, that the Trump administration has lost track of nearly 1,500 migrant children who entered the country alone this year. Each were moved from what the government calls shelters and placed with sponsors. But the Trump government now doesn't know where they are. Nearly 1,500 kids, about the same number the administration lost last year. So we're now talking about 3,000 kids lost in Trump's first two years. Administration officials say the government is no longer responsible for these children once they're handed over to sponsoring families. Lawmakers from both parties are now working together to make it the government's responsibility to require those sponsors to undergo background checks and to require the government to at least check on the children's welfare. Oh, and about that. A week ago, while we were paying attention to other matters, the feds arrested dozens of people who had come forward to take care of the children who had been taken away from their parents after arriving in the U.S. ICE agents were arresting the people who had come forward to help the U.S. care for the children it had taken into custody. And the Trump administration says it will arrest more of these kind people because they are undocumented. Some of those people who were the children's parents 
Others were family members. They're now being arrested under the Trump regime. But wait, there's more. You might have heard a headline squeak through about Trump's plans to cap the number of refugees that can escape harm by coming to America. Cap it to its lowest level in history. Refugees are legally allowed to flee to the U.S. in numbers that have been set and changed since 1980. But Trump is just as interested in slashing legal immigration as he is in slashing illegal immigration. And cutting the refugee numbers is even more cruel than what we have witnessed in Trump's immigration policies. The refugee number is now capped at 30,000, less than 10% of the number of people asking for refuge here. And the Trump administration is also making life tougher for people with green cards and for their families who may live in the U.S. Under Trump's newest policy, work and study visas will be denied to green card holders' families if they get food stamps or Medicaid, even though the green card holders already had to prove they are not a burden on the country. You can get assistance or you can get a green card, but you can't have both. That's the choice the Trump administration has now foisted upon millions of immigrants. Even a few Republicans found the courage to speak after Trump claimed that the death toll in Puerto Rico from Hurricane Maria had been inflated by Democrats to make him look bad. Trump clumsily tried to defend himself by tweeting that when he visited just after the storm, quote, they had anywhere from six to 18 deaths. Georgetown Washington University researchers counted 2,975, nearly 3,000. 3,000 people did not die, tweeted Trump, who praised his response to the disaster in Puerto Rico, where 60,000 homes still don't have roofs. Fast forward to Hurricane Florence in North Carolina. There, Trump surveyed the damage and said to a man who had lost his home, at least you got a nice boat out of the deal. A yacht had washed ashore on the storm surge and slammed into the man's house. Is this your boat, or did it become your boat? Trump asked the man, who said it wasn't his. Well, maybe it is now, said Trump, adding that he'd have someone check on that, with 25 people dead from the storm in North Carolina. But Trump went on and on about that boat, even asking about it days later. This boat, wiped out or not, asked Trump, adding, wouldn't want to cross the ocean in it. This boat, Trump said to reporters, I don't know what happened, but this boat just came here. And do you know whose boat it is? They don't know whose boat it is. Even in the midst of mass destruction, the man appreciates a good yacht. The president also inquired about Lake Norman, because he has a golf club there. Before the hurricane, there were some 9 million hogs in North Carolina, producing 10 billion gallons of waste each year. This effluence was stored in open-air lagoons, more than 3,000 lagoons that were fed bacteria to turn the waste into fertilizer. In the flooding that followed Hurricane Florence, those waste lagoons overflowed, and that waste and fertilizer began to spread. The carcasses of nearly 3.5 million chickens and turkeys and tens of thousands of other animals and tens of thousands of other animals are also rotting in those floodwaters, which continue to threaten the state today. Aside from the obvious health risks for humans, the fertilizer contamination will prompt the growth of algae of the sort that has threatened Florida beaches this summer in a red tide. Public health officials call it a toxic soup there in North Carolina. But that's just the beginning. 
The southern energy giant Duke Energy had been storing toxic coal ash in pits that were also breached by flooding from Florence. That, too, has spread across the water that's reportedly spread in eastern North Carolina. Duke Energy says the ash did not make it to the Cape Fear River, but environmentalists dispute that while we all await the official test results from the state. Duke had been in the process of transferring that coal ash from those open pits to lime pit landfills where the toxic material could be more safely stored, complying with a regulation that Duke Energy had resisted for years. Four years ago, Duke Energy allowed 39,000 tons of coal ash to spill into the Dan River and eventually pleaded guilty to criminal negligence. Outside Wilmington, North Carolina, a nuclear power plant reported an unusual event after floodwaters had damaged that facility. The reactors were in what a Nuclear Regulatory Commission spokesman called a hot standby mode 3 shutdown, adding, the plant is safe and stable and that floodwaters had not entered the facility and therefore did not threaten important equipment. So there's that. Politicians in North Carolina have not only ignored the news of climate change, they passed a law banning policies based on that science. They made it illegal for state officials to do anything based on the science of climate change, ordering them to use only records from the past. It's as if they believe there's no such thing as climate change there in North Carolina with that nice long shoreline. And science is being ignored by North Carolina's Republican lawmakers, including the news that the North Carolina coastline is among one of the most vulnerable in the country to rising sea levels. They will then no doubt be surprised when they see the rising insurance bills and the falling property values. California, meanwhile, is looking forward instead of backward. In the words of Governor Jerry Brown, we're going to launch our own dam satellite to figure out where the pollution is. State officials have teamed up with former NASA scientists now working at a company called Planet Labs. Brown says it's necessary for California to have its own dam satellite, quote, with science still under attack. Here's something a lot of people don't know about the midterm elections on November 6th. The voting's already begun. In 2016, 40% of us voted early, and that number's been increasing. Voting began Friday in Minnesota, South Dakota, and Virginia. It starts today in Illinois. So for those states, every day is election day between now and November 6th, more like election season. November 6th, by the way, is now just over five weeks away. Mark your calendars. Not all of your older Americans are watching Fox News and wearing red caps. In fact, despite solid Republican backing from the 65 and over crowd just an election or two ago, today's polling shows senior citizens leaning clearly Democratic. A CNN poll shows over 65ers favoring Democrats in their local congressional races over Republicans by margins of 16 to 20 percent. In Franklin Roosevelt's day and LBJ's day, the party of seniors was the Democratic Party. By default, that appears to be the case again today. And as Republicans once knew firsthand, seniors vote. Also voting this year, as underscored in my last report, are people who don't, usually. I propose that Democratic candidates who are young and or minority had inspired people who don't usually vote 
as they've already proven in the primaries, the primaries of all things. Democrats, much less these Democrats, never vote in primaries, and it appears to assure they will be voting again on November 6th. It's partly to reject the status quo, but also very much about having a choice of candidates who look like America now looks. And that includes people from the LGBT community. There are four times as many LGBT candidates in this midterm than in 2010. 21 openly LGBT people won their nominations to Congress, and four of them are running for governor of their state. And they are all Democrats. As Democratic control of the House becomes increasingly likely, so too does the prospect, as you've heard, of a Democratic-controlled Senate. CNN has it down to races in two states, Arizona and Tennessee, where Democrats are in the lead. Texas is very much in play, as is Nevada. In House races, districts to watch are mostly suburban in California, Illinois, Virginia, Maine, and New Mexico. But Democrats face many obstacles between now and the final vote count. Not the least among them are Republican successes at purging legitimate voters from the registration rolls. In Virginia, an employee of the federal government's Immigration Service discovered his name was on a list of supposedly ineligible aliens registering and voting. He was one of thousands of people wrongly purged in Kansas under a purge helmed by Republican Secretary of State Chris Kobach for every single ineligible person removed from the rolls, 300 legitimate voters were purged with them. Kobach is now trailing in his race to become Kansas governor. When doctors kill robot sex in Houston and try the smoked lobster in the third and final segment up next. As underscored in my last report are people who don't, usually. I propose that Democratic candidates who are young and or minority had inspired people who don't usually vote, as they've already proven in the primaries, the primaries of all things. Democrats, much less these Democrats, never vote in primaries, and it appears to assure they will be voting again on November 6th. It's partly to reject the status quo, but also very much about having a choice of candidates who look like America now looks. And that includes people from the LGBT community. There are four times as many LGBT candidates in this midterm than in 2010. 21 openly LGBT people won their nominations to Congress, and four of them are running for governor of their state. And they are all Democrats. As Democratic control of the House becomes increasingly likely, so too does the prospect, as you've heard, of a Democratic-controlled Senate. CNN has it down to races in two states, Arizona and Tennessee, where Democrats are in the lead. Texas is very much in play, as is Nevada. In House races, districts to watch are mostly suburban in California, Illinois, Virginia, Maine, and New Mexico. But Democrats face many obstacles between now and the final vote count. Not the least among them are Republican successes at purging legitimate voters from the registration rolls. In Virginia, an employee of the federal government's Immigration Service discovered his name was on a list of supposedly ineligible aliens registering and voting. He was one of thousands of people wrongly purged in Kansas under a purge helmed by Republican Secretary of State Chris Kobach for every single ineligible person removed from the rolls 300 legitimate voters were purged with them. Kobach is now trailing in his race to become Kansas governor. When doctors kill robot sex in Houston and try the smoked lobster in the third and final segment up next. 
I am really enthusiastic about this company, and you may be as well. It surprised me to learn that two-thirds of all men lose their hair by the time they're 35. A bald spot pops up, a creeping hairline. What's that going to look like a year from now or two years from now? You want to keep the hair you have for as long as possible. When thanks to science, baldness can be optional, not inevitable. Pro tip, don't buy the snake oil at convenience stores. Buy the real deal from medicine and science. 4hims.com connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to help you keep the hair you have and with money-saving generic prescriptions. 4hims.com is a guy's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and more with advice and prescription-grade medications, not herbal supplements, at a fraction of the usual cost. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits, and no pharmacy lines. It's all much, much faster, a real time saver. Just answer a few quick questions. The doctor reviews your answers and writes a prescription that comes straight to your door. The website is amazing. Do not decide without going first to 4 Right now, my listeners get a one-month trial of hymns for just 5 bucks and save hundreds of dollars on pharmacy visits. That includes a free consultation. See their website for details. This is a very limited offer, so hit pause right now and go to 4 slash bbnc. I'll spell it. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash bbnc. 4 com slash bbnc. Don't eat that. Over the weekend, the Cargill Meat Company recalled more than 132,000 pounds of ground beef likely contaminated with E. coli bacteria. It's the same line of prepackaged ground beef that was recalled in August at public stores with the USDA inspection mark EST68R. A new study shows 80,000 Americans die each year after being misdiagnosed by a doctor. That's one death every nine minutes from misdiagnosis. Poor communication, tight schedules, and a lack of standard procedures get the blame. Now more than 40 healthcare and patient groups have joined forces to get better diagnoses. The former Secretary General of the United Nations says the healthcare system in the U.S. is morally wrong. Ban Ki-moon says publicly financed healthcare is a human right. The U.S. has the most expensive health care system in the world, gobbling up 20% of our economy and costing each of us more than $10,000 a year. In the U.K., where health care is free, health care consumes less than 10% of that country's economy. It was in mid-July when Chio Miyako died at age 117. She may have been the oldest person in the world, but she wasn't that unusual in Japan. Today, the number of Japanese citizens over the age of 100 is at an all-time high. There are nearly 70,000 of them. 7-0, 70,000 people 100 years or older. Japan's current oldest citizen is 115. Credit card interest rates are going up, along with house payments with flexible mortgage rates. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates for the third time this year and says it will do so again before the year is out and three more times next year. It's a sign of a good economy, but it also means higher bills. A company that specializes in caller ID and call blocking technology predicts that one half of all the calls you get on your cell phone next year will be spam and that about half of those will be attempts to steal your identity and or money. You have been warned. 14 years, 
After Andrea Constat says she was drugged and violated by Bill Cosby, Cosby went to prison. The nearly blind 81-year-old went straight to prison on the judge's orders to begin serving three to ten years behind bars as a registered violent sex offender. No bail during the appeal. Of those who have fallen from high places in recent years, Bill Cosby fell the farthest. Rap mogul Suge Knight is 53 years old, and he's been sentenced to spend the next 28 years in prison for killing a man in an anger-driven hit-and-run on the movie set for Straight Outta Compton. Knight, along with Dr. Dre, co-founded Death Row Records in 1991. The guy most of us knew as Fonzie on The Happy Days has won his first Emmy as an acting teacher on the HBO series Barry. Game of Thrones won lots of statues, as usual. But Amazon won its first big Emmy this year for Best Comedy with The Marvelous Mrs. Mizell about a 1950s housewife who takes up stand-up comedy. And we also learned this month about Burton Arney. Arney is the name of the departed partner of a man who wrote the Burton Ernie scripts for Sesame Street. I always felt, without a huge agenda, when I was writing Burton Ernie, they were gay. Those are the words of Mark Saltzman, who was with his dear Arnie for 20 years before Arnie's passing. The Sesame Workshop immediately missed a teaching moment when it answered Mark's comments with, Bert and Arnie were just best friends. Arnie's best friend, Mark Saltzman, would agree. More mega media mergers in the business of show. Comcast won its bidding war against Fox for control of Europe's DirecTV equivalent, Sky. Fox will now find a different use for the money it had tied up in its 30% share of Sky TV. Perhaps Fox will swap it for the 30% of Hulu stock that is currently owned by Comcast, in case you're trying to keep up. Sirius XM has purchased Pandora, and that could change the center of power in the music industry. Sirius XM has 36 million subscribers. Pandora has 75 million active listeners. Look for Pandora to get a tune-up to compete again with Spotify and Apple Music. The co-founder of the cloud computing company Salesforce has purchased Time Magazine for $190 million. With Time, Salesforce also gets people and better homes and gardens. Negotiations continue for Money, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated. Time's online content has kept it alive and kept the company's value while other print publications were shutting down. The House with a Clock in Its Walls was the top movie this week, with a $27 million opening weekend. Crazy Rich Asians fell to fifth. Fahrenheit 11.9 premiered in eighth place. The Meg has now fallen to ninth. For movies, previews, reviews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. The Disney Corporation says it will start cutting back on its production of Star Wars movies. Too much too fast. We're going to be a little bit more careful, says CEO Bob Iger, now that a spate of Star Wars movies has made him the most powerful person in the entertainment industry. And speaking of space, if Earth's climate goes to hell, we might live long and prosper elsewhere. Astronomers have found a planet reminiscent of the planet Vulcan from Star Trek. It's twice as big as Earth and about the same distance from its sun as we are from ours. And it's only 16 light years from here. Astronomers know it as HD 26965. Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry knew this planet by the name 40 Eridani A, 
the home planet of the fictional Mr. Spock. And now a word about the Uranus Examiner. No giggling. That's the name of the new newspaper in Pulaski County, Missouri, in the town of, yes, the town of Uranus. Uranus sits along the scenic U.S. Highway Route 66 and includes among its landmarks the Uranus Fudge Shop. And speaking of funny words, Merriam-Webster has this year added some 300 new words to its Scrabble dictionary. The new words include sriracha, twerk, sheeple, emoji, facepalm, and yowza. And for those of us who always draw a Q without a U, they've introduced Kapik, a unit of currency in Azerbaijan, Q-A-P-I-K, Kapik. They've also introduced the word bizjets, short for business jets. Properly played, bizjets is good for up to 120 points since it also uses all seven tiles. Oh, and you shouldn't use a dictionary to play Scrabble or words with friends. Just saying. You won't likely need a new dictionary for Stormy Daniels' new book. That's nearly forgotten already in the floodwaters of today's news. What is handy, though, is a clear understanding of the Super Mario toys, which brought much ridicule to Donald Trump last week. Daniels' book, Full Disclosure, is described in reviews as funny, vulgar, and believable. Vontae Davis was already driving home in his street clothes before his teammates or anyone else knew he was gone. As soon as the clock hit zero at the end of a miserable first half for the Bills against the L.A. Chargers, Buffalo's Vontae Davis sprinted for the locker room, shed his helmet and pads and all the rest, and put on his real-life clothing, got in his car, and drove away. He left at halftime without saying a word to anyone. Vontae Davis was done done with the injuries and the pain and whatever terrible thing might happen out there on that day or some other. Today on the field, he said, reality hit me fast and hard. I shouldn't be out there anymore. Some of his teammates despise Davis for what he did. Some of them understand. Nordstrom, however, will sell you an old-looking pair of taped-up sneakers for just $530. They're already scuffed and everything and feature what Nordstrom is calling Crumply hold-it-all-together tape. In other retail news, Coca-Cola has announced it's keeping its eye on the growth of the CBD industry with an eye on putting it in soda. CBD does not make a person high, but it does ease pain and nausea. Right now, the focus is Canada, where marijuana is fully legalized, but Coke sees the changes that are occurring in this country as well. Bloomberg reports the soft drink giant is in talks with a company called Aurora Cannabis. Have a Coke and a smile. That leads us to the Flamin' Hot Cheetos restaurant in Los Angeles. It's just a pop-up, but an ambitious chef is behind it, serving up a variety of Mexican and Asian dishes, each one including Flamin' Hot Cheetos as an ingredient. Its motto is, why play with fire when you can eat it? The reservations are already full. In Houston, a religious group is trying to stop the opening of a brothel that features realistic sex robots instead of real women. A company out of Ontario, Canada, is intent on opening a Kinky Dolls location in Houston for half-hour or full-hour sessions. Quoting a spokesman for the objecting religious group, we were absolutely horrified. But he also argues that such a business will hurt men, subverting their understanding of what healthy sex is. Men are dying to have larger penises literally. 
In Stockholm last year, a 30-year-old man died of a heart attack after enlargement surgery. A 55-year-old man in Britain says his partner says he looks like a war wound and that it doesn't work the same after surgery. They mutilated me, says the Brit. But the penile extension business is, pardon the expression, growing despite the dangers and dissatisfaction. One doctor in London says he does about 250 of them a year, cutting a ligament that makes the organ appear longer and injecting belly fat for girth. And that's just one doctor in one city, those 250 surgeries a year. The surgery doesn't work out the way you might think. Afterward, the organ appears bigger until it's erect when it's exactly the same size as it was before. So better sex is not a reason to have the surgery. It's an aesthetic treatment for when it really doesn't count. Some of the surgeries are successful and the patients are satisfied. One man says he's looking forward to his third enlargement surgery. In Stewart, Florida, Florida, of course, the neighbors have already seen more than they wish of a man who likes to garden in the nude in his backyard. He prefers plants to pants. He doesn't do anything sexual, but the sheriff says the man has committed a lewd and lascivious act just by being naked and, and, and disturbing the peace. The neighbors are indeed disturbed. One woman says she saw the man when she carried out her trash, saw him winding up a garden hose while he was bent over. She says she told her kids that if they see him out there naked, look the other way. The problem laid bare in Evergreen, Colorado, however, involved an actual bear who got into a restaurant and tipped over the freezer, the 600-pound freezer. The bear was not injured, but also didn't get into the freezer and was forced to settle instead for rice and brown sugar. Luckily, says the owner, he didn't get into our sushi freezer. The restaurant was closed for a bit, according to the handmade sign, due to bear shenanigans. Police in Colorado Springs are looking for the young men who crashed a car into a marijuana dispensary early Wednesday morning, took all the samples from all the glass cases, and fled in another car. Joke's on them. The weed that was out on display in those cases was actually oregano. That old trick still works. No commas, damn it. Kansas Republican Mike Pompeo, now Trump's Secretary of State, is a stickler for punctuation. Under his direction, comma, State has sent out multiple memos instructing against the overuse of the curly signal to pause in your thoughts or your speaking. Official State Department emails have made it clear that Secretary Pompeo prefers the Chicago Manual of Style, which calls for commas that make reading easier, as opposed to the Oxford style, which brings some commas to a full stop. State Department diplomacy is tough, especially when you have to remember the edict no comma when single subject with a compound predicate. As per the Secretary of State, comma, Mike Pompeo, period. Highway spills and the like. Bags of dog food and garden mulch skittered across the road in Pennsylvania last week after a semi overturned on an exit ramp. No one got hurt this time. It was a house blocking the road in Plano, Texas this week, and not just any house. It was the old Collinwood place built in 1861. This 160-year-old two-story house was being moved in one piece, front porch and all, until it got caught on a streetlight. The streetlight was temporarily removed. 
In Montgomery Village, Maryland, a man circling 60 was teaching a woman of about that same age to drive in the parking lot of the North Creek Community Center pool. You know I wouldn't mention this unless the car wound up in the pool, which it did. A driving lesson turned into a diving lesson. Thankfully, the pool had already been closed for the season, and the couple escaped the vehicle and were standing alongside the pool looking down at the car when rescuers arrived. A restaurant in Southwest Harbor, Maine, is no longer offering the marijuana-smoked lobster. The health inspectors are letting Charlotte's legendary lobster pound remain open, but without the lobsters that had been sedated by a state-licensed medical marijuana caregiver. And finally, there's a monkey on the loose in Louisiana. The macaque escaped from his cage at a research facility of the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. The 12-pound monkey was last seen headed for the woods. The search is on. Meanwhile, in Jupiter, Florida, they were using multiple drones to look for the kangaroo that had escaped from its owner, an eastern gray named Storm. Florida Fish and Wildlife officers, local police, and even state troopers were out looking for the runaway roo. The five-year-old marsupial is easy to spot, about four feet tall, black paws, and a tail that is unbelievably powerful. The public has been advised that Storm the Kangaroo is pretty laid back. Unless he's startled. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.